Welcome to episode 5 of Shell Shocked. In this week's episode, we'll be applying the skeptical mindset to issues affecting the LGBT community. First, Marilyn and I will discuss a recent bill signed into law in Indiana that threatens to disrupt the daily lives of LGBT citizens there. Later, you'll hear an interview with famed neuroscientist Dr. Simon LeVay discussing his research on the biological roots of sexual orientation. Then we'll have a science report describing the dangers of so-called gay conversion therapy. And as always, we'll end with a good news segment, this time about the great strides being made in including LGBT people in sporting events. So as always, get yourselves comfortable, and snuggle up with the person of your choice, regardless of gender, and brace yourselves for Shell Shocked. Welcome to Shell Shocked. As many of our listeners are likely aware, the governor of Indiana, Mike Pence, recently signed into law something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA. This bill immediately caused a media frenzy for a number of reasons, including questions surrounding separation of church and state and concerns over the rights of business owners, but mostly due to fears of how it might affect LGBT citizens in the state of Indiana. Over the past several years, as more and more states are passing laws granting marriage equality to same-sex partners, Religious leaders and conservative representatives in government have been rallying to battle what they view as a tax on their free exercise of religion, most of which usually turns out to simply be bias and bigotry against gays, lesbians, and trans people. There have been false reports by many, including elected officials, warning voters that their local clergy would be forced by law to perform same-sex marriage rites and even warnings by some that everything from earthquakes and droughts in California or blizzards in the Northeast are due to God's wrath against <laughs> those who promote homosexuality. In the midst of all this turmoil comes Governor Pence, who signs legislation that's so broadly worded that even his own Speaker of the House, Brian Bosma, had to admit to a reporter shortly thereafter that businesses and communities without a local human rights ordinance in Indiana would be permitted under law to post signage saying, no gays allowed. This is so shocking that something like this is occurring in the 21st century that Marilyn and I decided to devote an entire conversation to it at the beginning of this episode. Marilyn, what the hell? Sheldon, I, I don't have any words. Um, you have just said it, 21st century, um, and we're going backwards to putting back up signs of people who are and aren't allowed into places. It's amazing. Governor Pence has said publicly over and over that the law's intent was never to discriminate and that he, quote, abhors discrimination and believes that the law is being maligned. Do you believe the law is being misrepresented? Um. No, not when you take into account um, a lot of the things that Pence has said in the past, and um, you know it it lines up with his rhetoric uh, before. In I think it was two thousand, you know, where he has stated that he believes uh, homosexuality is you know an abomination and that it just spreads HIV. Um, so you know if if he has that stance and he now postulates this new law. Um, 
he has taken the liberty, I think, of what it was supposed to stand for and try to um, appease not just, you know, maybe his own beliefs, but those of the very powerful lobbyists um, that are behind it. Yeah, the, in that same 2000 uh, uh, speech, he also said that he would not like to see any government money going into protecting LGBT people as a distinct group the way that we might uh, religion or race or gender. And he thought that the money would be better spent um, in gay conversion therapy for people who are gay, which <laughs> is just astonishing. Yeah, when I read that, I said, uh-oh, he has just made himself persona non grata with Sheldon. Oh, my <laughs> God. You know, I give, as you know, I give public science talks on that, and you've attended that yeah. one in particular. And that's the one that I have to update the most, because it seems like every time I turn around, there's another person putting his foot in his mouth, or another person getting busted who claimed he was cured of his homosexuality, and clearly he isn't. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm going to have to update it again with, with this situation. Yes. That's for sure. Um, here's a bit of history that might provide clarity on my suspicion that Pence is being dishonest when he says that this law was not meant to discriminate and that actually it's a lot like the federal RIFRA law that was passed in 1996 and signed by President Bill Clinton. Um, back in April of 2014, a New Mexico state court ruled against Elaine Photography in a lawsuit by a same-sex couple. The suit contended that the owners of the studio uh, refused to photograph the couple's wedding, which violated New Mexico's non-discrimination law. And the studio's lawyers argued that New Mexico's own RIFRA law barred the suit because the owners were simply exercising their freedom of religion. But the state's Supreme Court held that the RIFRA law did not apply because the government was not a party. Now, the reason this is important is because the Indiana RIFRA law has a special little section written into it that almost word for word covers their asses when it comes to that. Here's the exact language of the law. A person whose exercise of religion has been substantially burdened or is likely to be substantially burdened by a violation of this chapter may assert the violation or impending violation as a claim or defense in a judicial or administrative proceeding. Here's the special part regardless of whether the state or any other government entity is a party to the proceeding. Now, that's special because out of the 19 states that have RIFRA statutes, only one other has similar language to the one in Indiana. And guess what that state is? Ta-da! Texas! Texas. <laughs> Good old Texas! Ay, Dios mío. <laughs> I don't know why they don't just secede. I'm sorry if you're any any people out there from Texas. I'm sorry that you have to live there. But they disappoint me so much. As a person whose people are from the South, I've got a real problem with that. So I think that this is disingenuous on Pence's part. I think it seems pretty obvious that the reason they wrote the law was specifically to target LGBT people. That's also confirmed by a photograph I saw recently where Pence is signing the law and several of the gentlemen standing behind him, and I use the term gentlemen loosely, have gone on record as anti-gay or anti-LGBT. Some uh, have supported gay conversion therapy, um, one of them has spoken uh, out publicly against offering 
protections, uh, civil rights protections for gays and lesbians. So when you have people like that standing behind you in this closed session where you're signing a law that is this divisive, I think it's pretty clear what you're trying to do. Yeah, he did try, uh, I guess, to counter it a little bit because he did have some Orthodox Jews and some Franciscan monks and nuns um, with him as well to try to show, you know, that this was a religious uh, a pre preservation. Um, but uh, the fact that he had those uh, lobbyists there it was very, very telling. Well, it doesn't take much to go out and stir up a few Jews and a few nuns who are anti-gay. I mean, that's pretty easy. There's a group called Jonah, for instance, that is a Jewish gay conversion therapy group. There's plenty of Catholic churches that will offer that sort of counseling to you. And there are even psychologists out there who have their own group called NARTH, which I'll talk about later in the science report. And, you know, so it, it doesn't impress me at all that he would have these so-called good people standing behind him. It's just more evidence to me. Yeah. And was it um, Indiana that tried to take out the substantially from the that first part, the substantially burden? They just wanted to put burden on there to make it even, uh, you know, more likely that uh, discrimination could easily take place. So it wasn't a substantial burden, it was just any kind of burden. Well, the fallout from this has was immediate. Um, uh, there were certainly plenty of groups like the Human Rights Commission, um, uh, Lambda Legal Defense, um, lots of gay and lesbian groups and humanitarian groups and skeptic groups speaking out immediately and saying this is deplorable. But where it really got interesting was when state and local officials got involved. After the very public signing of the bill into law, Connecticut, New York, and Washington immediately announced a ban against all state-funded travel to Indiana, and the cities of Denver, Portland, Washington, D.C., Seattle, Berkeley, Oakland, and San Francisco announced identical bans. And even worse, public figures and business leaders across the country started to look at their bottom line and quickly hinted at plans to distance themselves from the fallout. Nine CEOs, including the CEOs from Angie's List, Salesforce Marketing, Anthem Inc., Eli Lilly and Company, Cummins, uh, Roche Diagnostics, Indiana University Health, and Dow AgroSciences, all called upon Republican leadership to enact legislation to prevent discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity, and that's when they started listening. I also read, and I'm not sure why, but that those Washington, New York, and uh, one more have since reinstated travel back. So now it's no longer um, disapproved, I guess. Right, and that probably has something to do with the last part of this little story, which is that having maybe given in to the pressure, especially the economic pressure, because they were potentially looking, according to some reports, at billions of dollars in losses to the state of Indiana. Uh, they've decided to go back in and make an addendum to this law that supposedly will protect LGBT citizens and others from discrimination. I haven't been able to find anything online that gives the exact wording, but I think you have something that suggests wording. So yes, the Indiana General Assembly website um, has the amendment um, on there, and they've added uh, 
a clause that says that it will not be used for refusal by a provider to offer or provide services, facilities, use of public accommodations, good employment or housing to any member or members of the general public on the basis of race, color, religion, ancestry, age, national origin, disability, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, or United States military service. You know what's really interesting about that is I read online today that if that amendment is signed or otherwise passes, this will be the first time in the entire history of Indiana that the words sexual orientation or gender identity will appear in any law. I know, that's incredible. When I was reading up on a lot of this, um, I it said that Indiana is, uh, is one of the states that doesn't have non-discrimination laws, and so it's all up to uh, local cities or municipalities to enact them, and a lot of them don't. And so uh, Indiana just has never uh, been, it seems, interested in protecting um, the LBGT community at all. It's crazy. I have to think that the legislature in Indiana is not representing all of the people of Indiana. I have to think that because we're in the 21st century. These are people who are Americans. They watch the same TV shows we do. They go to the same ball games we do. I mean, they're living the same lives we do. They're not stuck in a time capsule. So this can't be sitting well with them. I agree. I think that um, the mayor of Indianapolis came out and said, you know, we're a very tolerant um, and diversified group of people, and we don't like um, this law and what it makes uh, people think of us. And so he was you know, very upset um, with this law, and I think it is unrepresentative of what most Indiana people probably feel. Well, here's the upshot. Pence and his fellows have damaged the reputation of Indiana to the point that they've been forced to retain the services of Porter Novelli, a PR firm that's charging them $2 million retainer, plus whatever it will cost them for billboards, TV ads, and other media, just to try to untarnish the reputation of the Hoosier State. Even Chris Gall, who is the vice president of marketing for Visit Indy, the city's tourism branch, apparently agrees with the decision, stating, quote, clearly the last two weeks have beat up and tarnished the state's reputation as a welcoming place. So now it's it's a double problem for the people of Indiana. Not only has their reputation been tarnished, worldwide, frankly, but also they're going to have to pay out the nose in taxes to try to regain the reputation they had just a month ago. You know, this makes, you know, the entire United States look a certain way when other people view it, I'm sure, too. Yeah, you know, uh, when I spoke with Michael Shermer about this on the podcast and also, you know, off the podcast, he seems to believe that these are kind of the death throes of homophobia that they see the end coming they see marriage equality coming and these are sort of the extremists in the united states who see this last area where maybe it's okay for some people to live in that gray area and say uh separation of church and state except here you know that seems to be where this is coming from so i hope he's right about that that this is just the end of it all of course you and I know a little bit more about psychology than the average person, and human nature dictates that probably people will just find another scapegoat. 
I agree. I agree. I, I don't know who will be next, but I'm sure. I'm sure they'll take a group and demonize them. Uh, here's a here's a quote from a group, and I won't tell you who it is. I'll I'll save that for the end. Here's the quote: We will not embrace nor participate in exclusion or intolerance. Here's how bad Indiana is getting. That was from NASCAR. Oh my God! <laughs> NASCAR is even getting involved. That's, you know, that's when NASCAR great. is more tolerant than the leaders of your state, it might be time to get yourself into a voting booth. Um, and if I can share um, that a quote that I saw on Facebook from a Baptist minister, he said, "Once upon a time, religious freedom was the cry of the oppressed minority when basic human rights were being denied them by their own government because of their religious beliefs." Today, in the United States, religious freedom is becoming the cry of the privileged and powerful concerning what they can rightfully deny someone else because of religious beliefs. It has been a radical shift, and it is an embarrassing travesty. So hopefully, you know, like, like you said, they'll realize what an embarrassing travesty this is. Well, as a non-believer, that's a religious leader I could get behind. <laughs> yeah. I recently had the opportunity of interviewing someone who I admired for many years, Dr. Simon LeVay. Dr. LeVay is a British-born neuroscientist who served on the faculties of Harvard Medical School and the Salk Institute for Biological Studies, and is the author of eight nonfiction books, including Gay Straight and the Reason Why, Queer Science, and The Sexual Brain. He's also authored two psychology textbooks and a substantial collection of published peer-reviewed studies in scientific journals. He's probably best known for a 1991 study published in the prestigious journal Science entitled A Difference in Hypothalamic Structure Between Homosexual and Heterosexual Men, which is widely cited as the first study to demonstrate a biological difference in the brains of gay men. Here is that interview. So, Dr. LeVay, welcome, and thank you for being on Shellshocked. Sure thing. Uh, perhaps I should begin by asking you to summarize that 1991 study. What was that all about, and what did you find? It was an autopsy study looking at the brains of uh, people who had died. Uh, these included heterosexual men, gay men, and women whose sexual orientation I didn't know. And uh, it was a follow-up to a previous study that's been done at UCLA looking at sex differences in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. And what they found was that there was a group of cells that was typically larger in men than in women. Uh, and uh, this was in a part of the hypothalamus that's known to be involved in the regulation of male typical sexual behavior. So what I wanted to know was whether there'd be differences not only between people of different sex, but also between people of the same sex but different sexual orientation. And uh, with regards to men, I found that was in fact the case. I found that this group of cells, which has the name INAH3, um, was larger on average in the heterosexual men than it was in the gay men. So in fact in the gay men it was about the same size as it was in the women in my study. 
In addition to the accolades and notoriety the study brought you, I seem to recall some pretty serious criticisms of your study after it became widely known. Can you tell us a bit about some of those critiques that people had and what you had to say in response to them? Sure. I mean, the most common criticism I faced was that people said, oh, you're looking at a disease effect. You know, all the gay men in my study died of complications of AIDS. So maybe it was AIDS that was causing this um, shrinkage, if you like, of this part of the brain uh, rather than sexual orientation of the men. And um, I was very confident that that was not the reason because uh, one half of the heterosexual men in the study also died of complications of AIDS. And if I just compared the gay men who died of AIDS and the heterosexual men who died of AIDS, I saw exactly the same difference. So um, there was no suggestion that um, just having AIDS or dying of AIDS would um, produce any change in the size of the cell group. And then much more recently, there's been a study in sheep done by a group at Oregon Health Sciences University. In sheep, you, you, you have a, um, a minority of the males, the rams, that are homosexual in, this, in the sense that they'll only mate with other males. And what this Oregon group found, it was basically the same that I did. In the part of the brain that we're talking about, this cell group, which is typically larger in male sheep than female sheep, was smaller in these homosexual rams compared with the heterosexual rams. You know, they hadn't died of any disease. They were sacrificed while they were healthy, you know, to, to have their brains examined. Um, there was no question of any disease effects in that case. So I think that kind of bolsters the idea that um, I wasn't looking at the disease effect either. Right. So you've been studying sexual orientation for quite a while now. What got you first interested in the subject? Well, I'm gay myself, so I suppose that was, you know, part of the reason. And uh, but it also follows on from earlier research I did in another brain system, in the visual system, uh, which I studied for many years, where I was also looking at questions of nature and nurture in uh, brain development. And so it was kind of natural to extend that to um, another system, if you like, in the brain, but really asking similar questions. And um, so that was the uh, the main reason. And then the fact that this UCLA study came out um, showing the sex difference in this part of the brain was also uh, you know, a reason for me to think that one might be able to find something of interest there. People talk a lot about a gay gene and whether our sexuality is, quote, genetic. Is that a good way to look at the question, or do you think it misses the mark in some ways? That's a bit of a slang term. It really means, you know, genes that influence, you know, the likelihood that someone would develop a homosexual orientation. First of all, I'm not a geneticist, and none, the work that I did was, was nothing directly to do with, you know, gay genes or anything. But there's been several other studies now from other labs where they have found evidence for um, what, what you might call gay genes, if you like. So it's not, they may not be determinative, but they influence uh, the, the trait of sexual orientation. And uh, there's pretty good evidence now that such genes exist. They haven't actually been identified, but the locations on the chromosomes where they, where they um, are uh, have been identified, or some of them at least. Some researchers are looking elsewhere in the body for biological differences that are associated with sexual orientation, and some people have found other interesting correlations that are somewhat surprising. What are some of those, and what do you think they mean? Well, um, one of them is uh, finger length ratios, which is um, a, a, um, where there's a basic sex difference in the ratio of the length of the ring finger to the index finger, uh, where men typically have a shorter index finger in comparison to their ring finger. And this 
sex difference comes about apparently, at least in part, because of um, under the influence of uh, testosterone circulating in the fetus before birth. So this ratio is being used as a kind of label to give some idea about what levels of testosterone exposure a particular you know person might have been exposed to years ago, you know, before their birth. And the several groups now reported that in women there is a difference between heterosexual and lesbian women in their uh, finger length ratios, uh, such that in the lesbians the ratio is sort of shifted uh, part way towards what you typically see in, in men. So that has been taken as as supportive evidence that something different is going on in fetuses, you know, destined to become gay adults versus fetuses that are going to become heterosexual adults. It kind of points the finger at, you know, these very early processes of development, just as my study did. Do you have any theories or ideas about the evolutionary role that homosexuality plays in our own and other species? No, it's an interesting question. You know, it's obviously a paradox because if there are genes promoting homosexuality, you think they'd disappear because gay people typically have fewer offspring than straight people do. Um, uh, and uh, there are a number of plausible theories to account for that. And just to um, mention one, which I think is, is, uh, is, a, is a good one, um, is the idea that these genes are maintained in the population because they increase the reproductive success of persons who have the gene but are not gay. And so, for example, if you have uh, gay men carrying a gene promoting male homosexuality, the sisters of those men might have the same gene because they, you know, they're inheriting from the same parents. And it might be this would make them, as it were, sort of hyper-heterosexual and have more offspring because... After all, if this gene is promoting attraction to men, then it would, uh, in women, it would make them even more attracted to men. And there's some evidence to support that, um, that there's, there's several studies now reporting that the female relatives of gay men have more children than uh, women who don't have a, um, a gay sibling or relative. So... Um, that idea that the gene keep, stays in the population because it, it's, it, it increases the reproductive success of, uh, of um, women uh, is uh, a pretty plausible one to me, I think. Wow. I've noticed that some of the findings in sexual orientation research, such as uh, masculinity and femininity and cross-gender play as children, overlap in some ways with the research on transsexual people. Do you think that there is a connection there, or do you think these are separate constructs entirely? I think there's a connection. You know, I'm not trying to say that gay people and trans people are the same. They're obviously not, because for obvious reasons. But there is a sort of borderland between the two. There's lots and lots of studies now, both cognitive studies, anatomical studies, physiological studies, reporting that gay people are somewhat gender shifted in, in many traits, cognitive and physical traits, um, which also applies uh, even more to uh, trans people. So it's as if there's a kind of spectrum of gender and sexual orientation uh, it, which you know, gay people occupy one domain of that and trans people another domain, but those t domains are adjacent and they, there's some overlap between them. And we see that, for example, in people like, um, you know, uh, Chaz Bono, as he then was, you know, who was a, a, a 
who, um, oh, sorry, originally Chastity Bono, right, who identified as a butch lesbian for many years and then uh, decided that um, that he was actually a man and became Chaz Bono and, and went through, you know, various procedures to, to masculinize his body. And so that kind of, uh, that boundary crossing is actually quite common. And so you can't draw a very sharp distinction between uh, a trans identity and a gay identity. Right. If you could or give a researcher advice, this is the next domain. This is where we should be looking in research on sexual orientation. Do you have any ideas about what that would be? Well, I think one of the you know understudied aspects of this is um, whether there are different kinds of gay people. I mean, of course, we know there are different kinds of gay people simply you know by asking them and so on. But are there biological differences, for example, between butch and femme lesbians? And there are some. A few studies suggesting that there are uh, biological differences between those two kinds of lesbians. And I should say that not all lesbians do identify as one or the other, but if you com- compare those who do identify as butch, there are some marked anatomical differences between them. So, And the same thing might be true for gay men. Uh, and so that's an avenue I think that needs to be explored. We need to look more carefully at um, people's sexual orientation than just pigeonholing them as gay or straight. Do you think that the research is skewed in any way by the fact that when we do research on gay men and lesbians, that the ones who are less gender conforming are more likely to volunteer for those kinds of studies? Um, hmm. I don't know. Uh, that's an interesting question. You know, a lot of this evidence points to the idea that that gay men are gender non-conforming in many ways. And of course, there's a tremendous amount of diversity there with some more gender nonconformists than others. And it's possible in, in, in some studies that, that it is, as you say, the very gender nonconformist gay men, for example, uh, do, are the ones who volunteer. But there are other studies that don't really involve that. You know, there are studies which take data from, um, uh, from national statistics. For example, in, in, your, in Scandinavia, it's possible to um, get information about everyone who's entered into a same-sex marriage and then find their medical records. And studies have been done in that way that also show differences which um, would not be susceptible to the kind of problem you're talking about. Well, this is certainly fascinating. I thank you so much for your time. What are you doing in the future? What are you working on now? Is there a place people go can go and learn more about your work? Well, the, the, the book, um, Gay Straight and the Reason Why, uh, that that I published a couple of years ago is probably the most extensive, um, you know, description of uh, of the state of this body of research. And um, so uh, I'm actually right now um, preparing a second edition of that because it's uh, quite a lot has happened just in the last two or three years. So that's what I'm doing right now. And uh, other than that, I'm just uh, kicking back and having a good time. Well, great. You certainly deserve it. It's been a pleasure talking okay. to you again, sir. And thank you so much for your time. Okay, Shelton, no problem. Bye-bye. The Science Report The first time I sat down to write about the subject of gay conversion therapy, 
I was reminded of a quote by Charles Darwin. Ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. It is those who know little, not those who know much, who so positively assert that this or that problem will never be solved by science. That reminder is just as useful today as it was when Mr. Darwin first penned the words. On the journey to understand the people involved in the effort to convince gay people that they can change their sexual orientation, and indeed that they should do so, you end up meeting a lot of people who express a degree of confidence that you just don't find in people who actually know something about the topic they're discussing. In those of us who are skeptics, that's often off-putting and a red flag. Unfortunately, to those who seek help from these charlatans, it often serves to help them rake in the acolytes. Gay conversion therapy, or as it's sometimes called, reparative therapy, or sexual orientation change efforts, has a relatively long history, but it's important to keep in mind that not all cultures in all times have viewed sexual minorities in a bad light. There are plenty of examples of certain cultures and people in certain time periods who tolerated or even revered gays and lesbians. But in the 21st century, even in the Western world, even right here in the good old U.S. of A., that's often not the case. As a result, two distinct but sometimes overlapping groups have grown up around the idea that we need to eradicate everything that isn't strictly heterosexual. One is known as Exodus International and comes from a purely religious angle. The other, sadly, is a group headed by real psychologists, psychiatrists, and others in the field of mental health. That group calls itself NARTH, the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality. Both of these groups perpetuate the belief that homosexuality is pathological and that change to heterosexuality is possible, neither of which is supported by the evidence. Gay conversion therapy is, technically speaking, a series of practices that seek to change one's sexual orientation, identity, and behavior from homosexual to heterosexual. As you just heard in the interview with neuroscientist Simon LeVay, there's a huge collection of scientific evidence showing that sexual orientation is likely the result of a series of complex biological phenomena and not, as was believed in previous generations, created by upbringing, early childhood experiences, trauma, parenting styles, or any other aspect of our social environment. A review of the results of these attempts to change people's sexual orientation soon reveals that any reported changes are almost exclusively in the areas of identity and sexual behavior, and not actual changes in sexual orientation. In other words, you can guilt or scare people into calling themselves straight or behaving as if they are, but that doesn't make it true. One of the most consistent messages you hear from the so-called ex-gays who've been through these programs is a general equating of homosexuality with a so-called homosexual lifestyle, filled with excessive drinking, drug use, prostitution, sexual promiscuity, and HIV-AIDS. Leaders of gay conversion groups often report terrible experiences in their life histories, and rather than viewing these as problems associated with bad choices or even with non-acceptance in a homophobic society, they instead view them as endemic to the gay experience. And this is where groups like Exodus and Narth come in, promising to save you from all that by making you straight. 
And if you're wondering what the harm is, consider a study by Cochrane and Mays published in April of 2000, which showed that compared with a sample of exclusively heterosexual men, 3.6 of whom had attempted suicide, the gay men in their survey showed over a five-fold increase to 19.3% who had tried to kill themselves, mostly before the age of 25. In fact, suicide is the number one killer of gay teens in America. And since a majority of victims of gay conversion therapy fit into this age group, this is a dangerous proposition indeed. Those at particular risk are gay teens who come from conservative and highly religious households, which ties directly into the first group I'm going to tell you about, Exodus International. Exodus began in 1976 after a man named Michael Bussey called a teen suicide hotline run by a local church. Bussey is gay, and he told the hotline worker that he was thinking of killing himself. Luckily, he didn't follow through, but he did end up joining the church shortly thereafter and eventually combined his efforts with a man named Gary Cooper and several others to form a support network for gay men. This would eventually transform itself into Exodus International, and with the use of the Pray the Gay Away method, as well as pseudo-counseling, language counseling in which participants are literally taught to call men dude and women babe and all male retreats yikes they promise to help gay men find their true heterosexual selves with the help of jesus's love now you have to remember that these are often very religious men who have been told that there is a god and an afterlife and that their sexual orientation is preventing them from becoming worthy of both Exodus is now a huge organization, with 120 local ministries in the U.S. and Canada, and over 150 in 17 other countries. Their founding mission was short, simple, and clear. Mobilizing the body of Christ to minister grace and truth to a world impacted by homosexuality. If you're wondering how successful this all was, you can look at it from two different perspectives. From a financial and cultural perspective, Exodus has been very successful. It's attracted thousands of participants and has raised a lot of money. But from the start, they had a hard time showing any signs that their methods were effective. In fact, their first two poster children, Michael Bussey and Gary Cooper, who spent the first few years after the organization's start traveling around and giving talks and raising money, and also staying in hotel rooms together ostensibly to save money, eventually announced that they had fallen in love and were leaving the group. They later had a commitment ceremony, and by 1979, they were regularly speaking out against the group and its methods as ineffective and potentially harmful. In a recent interview, Bussey was asked whether he ever actually saw anybody change their sexual orientation. Here is his answer. I had many people report that they had changed or were changing. Not so much that they had changed in past tense, but that they were in the process of change, that they were becoming more and more heterosexual, or that they were becoming, more often that they were becoming less and less homosexual, they were becoming sort of asexual. So I had people who claimed that they had changed. I never believed it. Never really believed it. Wanted to believe it. But I never really saw it happening. I never saw one of our members or other Exodus leaders or other Exodus members become heterosexual. So deep down I knew 
that it wasn't true. Since then, Exodus has had a lot of trouble keeping leadership and keeping on track. A high-profile leader in the 1990s named John Polk, for instance, was forced to resign after activists spotted him in a well-known Washington, D.C. gay bar, apparently enjoying himself and picking up on the bartender. More recently, the organization has undergone a major overhaul after current Exodus president Alan Chambers, also a self-described ex-gay, announced that the group would no longer be offering gay conversion therapy or counseling. Just what they will become in the future has yet to be determined, but Chambers has said in interviews that he still believes that the group can serve an important purpose by offering ministry and support to gays who choose to live celibate lives or who want to attempt to have heterosexual marriages. Clearly it's going to take a while for Exodus to give up the ghost. As a human being who's concerned with human suffering, I naturally have major issues with Exodus. But as a psychology professor, I find another group even more disturbing. That group is NARTH, the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality. This group was founded and is run by trained mental health professionals. These aren't people just pretending to be psychologists and psychiatrists. They're the real deal. And they've decided that the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Medical Association, and dozens of other scientific organizations are simply wrong when they say that homosexuality is not an illness. One of their past presidents and most vocal proponents is a psychologist named Joseph Nicolosi, who founded the group in Encino, California back in 1992. In explaining their issues with the APA's decision to exclude homosexuality as a mental illness in the official Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or DSM, Nicolosi makes a number of logical errors. He assumes that because people like Freud, Jung, and Adler, the so-called Three Greats, viewed homosexuality as a mental illness, then it must be true, the well-known appeal to authority. He also believes that the change was made on the spur of the moment and without any research basis which is simply not true. Here he is rambling on about it. Not only is the APA changing now, but APA changed before 1973. We have to understand, if we're going to follow the words of the APA, then we have to consider that before 1973, homosexuality was always a disorder. Always a disorder. The three greats in psychology, Jung, Freud, and Adler, the three greats, all saw homosexuality as a disorder. But, and, and it has been consistently seen as a disorder until one day in 1973. What happened on that day? Was there a big scientific meeting? Was there an understanding of new evidence? No, there was no new evidence presented. Suddenly it was a political decision. And so in one day, 150 years of literature was wiped away. Like their religious predecessor, Exodus, North has had some major PR problems due to slip-ups with their leadership. Back in 2010, North board member and Southern Baptist minister George Rakers was forced to resign after activist reporters spotted him in an airport with a young man they later learned he'd hired from a gay escort service called Rentboy.com. When interviewed later, the young man named Giovanni Roman said that Rakers had taken him on a two-week trip to Europe and that they'd engaged in nude play and massages. Rakers claimed that he'd hired the kid to carry his luggage, although pictures published later online 
clearly show him carrying his own luggage as Roman stood by and did nothing. But I'd be remiss if I didn't take a few moments to introduce you to perhaps the most extreme and bizarre example of the gay conversion therapy loons, a man named Richard Cohn. Cohn is the author of numerous books such as Coming Out Straight and even more horrifying, Gay Children, Straight Parents. He engages in some of the most bizarre and ridiculous pseudotherapies I've ever seen, all of which he claims will help cure men of their same-sex attractions. One of the most incredible is the so-called holding therapy, which requires men to be cradled and caressed by Cone for the entire session. This is supposedly to reinstate the father-child bond that Cone says made him gay in the first place and using an old and long-since disproven technique of catharsis, which Cohn has renamed bioenergetics, he has clients beat a pillow with a tennis racket while attempting to work out feelings of anger and fear they feel toward the parents who made them this way. I was angry at my mother, okay. so I started saying, Mom! 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 Why did you... Do that to me! In the midst of all this silliness, the best some can hope for is that it's just a waste of time and money, and at worst, another in a long line of ineffective attempts to make themselves happy. But things can take a much darker turn. Reports by some who are survivors of gay conversion therapy tell of techniques that border on torture, with psychological and physical pain being associated with same-sex images, teen camps that are meant to toughen up gay boys or feminize and tame lesbians. In some rare instances, such as the one at a South African camp called Echo Wild Game Rangers, young men even lost their lives. Raymond Byes was one of these. A 15-year-old whose parents sent him to the camp to cure him of what they described as effeminate behavior and to quell their fears that he might be gay. After only two and a half months at the camp, Raymond was returned to his parents as an emaciated, half-dead shell of his former self. He was malnourished, dehydrated, had broken bones and burns all over his body, and after laying in intensive care for four weeks, eventually succumbed to his injuries and died. Fellow campgoers later described horrific treatment, with Raymond being singled out by camp leaders for particularly harsh punishment. He was chained to his bed for days, forced to eat his own feces, and shocked with electric cattle prods for days on end. Investigators later learned that two other young men had died a year earlier, and that these 18 and 19-year-old boys' deaths had been declared heart attacks. A court-ordered re-examination of their bodies determined that they had in fact died from strangulation. The camp was shut down and their leader was arrested and charged with murder and for running a paramilitary camp for a conservative religious group. The bad news is that there are still those who believe that homosexuality is not only sinful, but also a sign of immorality and a danger to society. This despite a lack of any evidence that gay people differ in any way from their heterosexual counterparts. For now, religious leaders, politicians, and even some fringe mental health professionals can count on the demonizing of homosexuality for money, votes, and even research funding. But in case you haven't noticed, Times they are a changin'. 
Surveys show a huge shift in general attitudes toward gays and lesbians, with large percentages of Americans now supporting laws that protect LGBT citizens and ensure their equal treatment in society. This is especially true among the youth of America, with studies showing a large majority holding positive feelings toward gays and lesbians. So as the sands of time ensure that the process of evolution continues, and all those stuffy, bigoted, old white dudes in charge of our society for so long are replaced by a more diverse and accepting generation, we can look forward to a time, perhaps very soon, when things like gay conversion therapy are a thing of the past. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hello, Shellshocked listeners. This is Marilyn, welcoming you to this week's Good News segment. This week's story comes from an unexpected place, the world of sports. What makes it even better for a baseball fanatic like I am is that it's a great baseball story, and it involves the Bay Area's own Oakland A's. This year, for the very first time, the A's decided to celebrate the Bay Area's LBGTQ community on June 17th when they'll be playing a game against the San Diego Padres. This Pride Night, as they're calling it, is a tribute to the life of Glenn Burke. Glenn Burke was a Major League Baseball player for the Los Angeles Dodgers and Oakland A's from 1976 to 1979. Burke was the first and only MLB player to come out as gay to teammates and team owners during his professional career and was the first to publicly acknowledge it. Sadly, he died from AIDS-related causes in 1995. He is quoted as saying, They can't ever say now that a gay man can't play in the majors because I'm a gay man and I made it. On Pride Night, one of Burke's own family members will be throwing out the first pitch. In addition, partial profits will benefit AIDS Project East Bay and Frameline, a non-profit supporting the LBGT media arts. While this is the A's first ever Pride game, other teams have been doing it for years. The Chicago Cubs Pride games date back to 2001, and the team has been really involved in the city's LGBT community. Our other baseball team across the Bay, the San Francisco Giants, have held LGBT games for more than a decade. While sports in general still have a long way to go in being completely supportive and inclusive, Major League Baseball is trying. And last year, they even hired their first ambassador for inclusion, former player Billy Bean. This Billy Bean is not to be confused with another former Major League Baseball player and current general manager of the A's, Billy Bean. Can you tell the subtle difference? Just kidding. Anyway, the Billy Bean in this story played in Major League Baseball as an outfielder for the Detroit Tigers, the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the San Diego Padres. He publicly came out as gay in 1999 after he had retired from the game. In his new role, Billy Bean will provide guidance and training related to efforts to support those in the LGBT community throughout Major League Baseball. While there's not yet an active out LGBTQ baseball player, it's great to see Major League Baseball taking strong steps to make sure LGBTQ people are welcome both on the field and off. Okay, so all of this is great news, but, and there always seems to be a but, 
After the Oakland Athletics announced on social media that they would be hosting their first ever LGBT Pride Night, they got some backlash from fans who weren't feeling it. A number of fans let loose on the team's Facebook and Twitter feeds, rattling off offensive, ignorant, and often homophobic responses. Let me read you just three of these to give you a feel for the type of remarks. Here's one. Are the players going to prance from base to base? Is the starting pitcher going to literally throw like a girl on purpose? Is the team going to have rainbow theme uniforms? Here's another one. Parents, please note this is not a game you want to take your kids to. Like, you're going to catch cooties? Finally, what other fetishes are we going to recognize at ball games? Ignorant and sickening, isn't it? The team thankfully stood by the decision, however, with the team's vice president of sales of marketing telling the San Francisco Chronicle, I think you can find a few people on Twitter to backlash against anything. The wide majority of our fans will be supportive or have no opinion. Of course, this isn't just anything, and I would like this to be celebrated like any other appreciation day at the park. And so we've come to the real heart of our story. After some of the fans said they would not be attending the game, Ariane Dolan stepped in. Dolan is the girlfriend of the ace pitcher, Sean Doolittle, and she was raised by two wonderful mothers. Because what she did is so awesome, let me read what she posted on her blog. And I quote, Dear season ticket holders who wish to sell their tickets for the LGBT Pride Night, Everybody's entitled to their own beliefs, and as long as nobody's getting hurt, I'm happy. I also can't stop you from selling your tickets. I won't tell you that you are wrong or that you are not allowed to think or act that way. We live in a free country, after all. You are free to think and say and do whatever you'd like. She goes on to say, So, A's fans, if attending a baseball game on LGBT Pride Night makes you at all uncomfortable, it is probably a good idea to sell your tickets. And I have the perfect buyer, me. If you'd like to sell your tickets to June 17th LGBT Pride Night game, I will buy them from you at face value. As many as I can, no judgments, no questions asked. From there, I will donate any tickets I purchase to the Bay Area Youth Center's Our Space community for LGBTQ youth. That way, you don't have to feel uncomfortable and the seats don't go to waste. It's a win-win. Please tweet at me if you'd like to sell me your tickets. I'll purchase as many unwanted tickets as I can out of my own pocket. I also encourage other A's fans to do the same. Let's fill the stands that night. Love, Ariane, and my hella gay moms. How cool is that? To top it off, Doolittle offered to match any ticket purchases Dolan made. You have to love these two people. After Doolittle and Dolan's offer went viral among the A's community, the A's themselves released this statement. We are hopeful that the support that has been expressed for the event in the past few days will make it an even more successful first year event and demonstrate that the A's organization welcomes and supports the inclusion of all fans. But wait, it gets even better. After the positive response to Dolan's blog post, she and Doolittle started a GoFundMe campaign to buy more tickets and donate them to our space. Donations to the GoFundMe page hit their target of $6,000 on the first day before the couple even had a chance to make a matching $3,000 donation. 
as of right now, the page has raised over $36,000. Can I say how proud I am of all the ACE members that are supporting Pride Night? Dolan updated the campaign after raising over $25,000. She is encouraging us to try to raise as much money as possible. The money for Dolan in Doolittle's GoFundMe campaign goes to the teens and young adults at Our Space. Our Space is a community center that offers a safe space for LGBTQ youth to explore their identities, socialize, build community, develop leadership skills, and receive non-stigmatizing, culturally competent mental health services. Most of the people helped by Our Space don't have a home, and often that's a result of them coming out to their families. With her campaign, Dolan understands that they need a sense of community and family more than anybody. She states, that's why Pride Night is important. I want to show them that no matter their own personal situation, they always have a family and a community among Oakland Athletics fans. Because of their campaign, the A's have already opened up three new seating sections, up from just one, for Pride Night to let even more people in on the fun. The overwhelming positive response to Dolan's plan is just the latest sign of progress in the world of baseball. I encourage you to donate to their campaign and better yet, donate and buy tickets to Pride Night on June 17th. Let's go A's! This is Marilyn and this has been the Good News Report. Well, that's the show. Thanks for tuning in to Episode 5 of Shell Shocked. And hey, did you know that Shellshocked is now available on Stitcher? Whether you use an iPhone, an Android, or any other smartphone, the Stitcher app will allow you to make sure that you never miss a single episode of your favorite podcasts. And I'm sure ours will be at the top of your playlist. And if you haven't already done so, be sure and join our Facebook fan page. We're over 700 fans so far, and the podcast hasn't even existed a full month yet. We really appreciate all the support. Thanks for listening, and be sure and tune in next week. And in the meantime, you've been shell-shocked.